Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today we continue our series of disruptors, people across our state who are making an impact in their work and in our communities. Later we hear from two sisters who are breaking barriers and becoming role models for the next generation of Muslim girls in America. And director Melvin Chen talks about the Norfolk Chamber Music Festival. There's an ambitious new project to make classical music more accessible. But first, Reverend Quavon Newton. He's a 2021 graduate of Yale Divinity School and senior pastor at Rush Temple AME Zion Church in Queens, New York. His path to the pulpit was not straightforward. He spent time in prison for dealing drugs, but went on to earn his GED before becoming a rising star in the banking world. Now he's using those experiences to help other young people. Reverend Newton, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you. I'm, I'm honored to be here, uh, to be on this great show uh, that has already done great things, but I, I know that even greater is on the way, so I am honored. Well, I appreciate you for claiming that and speaking it into existence. Reverend Newton, you graduated from Yale Divinity School, and there was a lot of media buzz around your graduation. But for our listeners who may not be familiar with your story and your journey, I want to start by talking about that a little. You grew up or or spent your formative years in New Haven, and you say that that had an impact on the path and direction of your life. Share with our listeners what that path looked like for you. Uh, So I I moved to New Haven, Connecticut my freshman year of high school, and I attended James Hill House High School. Uh, Before that, um, grew up in Harlem, New York. My father um, took over a church in New Haven. So my father's a pastor. Really coming to New Haven, I I, I spent a lot of time trying to find myself, trying to find who I am, my own identity. Uh, And it was um, really through that, trying to um, discover who I am, that um, led me down, the I would say, the wrong path, hanging, uh, so to say, with the wrong group of friends. Uh, yeah, during that time, um, was uh, attending James Hill House uh, freshman year, sophomore year. Freshman year, I did pretty okay. Um, out of the eight classes, past past seven of them, it was okay. Uh, sophomore year, out of eight credits, I got 0.5. Uh, I passed gym for half the year. And uh, from there, that's when um, more trouble started, uh, selling drugs, uh, leaving school, got arrested, faced four felonies. Um, uh, around that time and um, and got expelled. But really around that time, uh, especially uh, a church going parents who prayed for me, uh, like I said, had me on in mind, took the time and prayed for me. Uh, I, I, I imagine it was very difficult for them, um, but they, they always believed in me. So I grew up in a two parent household. My mother and father um, always believed in me and knew that this wasn't the person that they raised. And again, I would say the, the transition really took place um, outside of church and giving my life to Christ and uh, God changed things around. But um, it's not only spiritual, like uh, you, you must not only pray, but you need to learn how to move your legs after you pray. So it was uh, when I got my first job, really, and um, and took off at Bank of America, started out part-time teller, 
uh, 20 hours a week, $10 an hour. I thought I was P. Diddy making that kind of money. I'm making $10 an hour. Uh, but um, got promoted two months later because ended 600% to my, my goal. Uh, got promoted again six months later after ending 450% to my goal. Uh, then uh, a year later, got promoted once again. Um, and this was all with my GED, became the, um, uh, became the uh, top three personal banker in the region. So let me let me ask you a question, because this journey is your own and often the life that we live every day, we don't see it in the terms of what it means to get from being expelled from high school, encountering these felonies or, or getting these felonies to then becoming so productive in a career in the banking industry, no less with a GED. I want to take a step back because you talked about growing up in this two-parent household, your father being a pastor. There is this sort of running joke within Black communities about PKs, preacher's kids, and the pressures that children's of, uh, children of pastors often feel to live a particular way, to conform to expectations that may not match with the reality, the day-to-day challenges that they face. Do you feel like that played a part, that kind of pressure? Or was it just, look, these are the choices I made as a young man in terms of figuring out what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be? So I would say that um, uh, my parents uh, really understood that. So they they, they never really put pressure um, on me. Pressure may have come from the outside of other people saying, you're going to be pre- a preacher just like your daddy. And, and I will tell you the very last thing that I ever wanted to do was be a preacher in my life, the very last thing. <laughs> but uh, I, I think it was, um, so seeing my father um, as a hard worker, as successful, my, my, my mom as a hard worker, as successful, um, understanding that they, they, they were able to obtain a, a, a level of success, leadership and power. Um, as you have the influence of the streets, you, you can see that right there. And it's more easily attainable, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, so I think that was really the draw, um, feeling that sense of um, sense of, of su- success, leadership, power, um, and money. Um, my parents did not understand why I wanted a new pair of Jordans uh, every two weeks. I-, I knew what I wanted in life. I was sh- I was sure that um that I was a leader, um, that I wanted to be successful, that I wanted to continue to elevate in life. But where that was where that was placed and where my focus was was off. I, I, I saw it easily um, in one area um, and I went that direction instead of understanding that education is really the key to everything. Who were the people in addition to your parents who poured into you to say, Quavon, you are a leader. You have this potential. You have this ability. The way you're going is not the right way. Let's figure out how we turn this around. So there, there were um, a lot of people who um, played that role, but I would say the most um, impactful person was um, <clears throat> his name was Ken Lundy. And he was actually the uh, the manager at Bank of America in New Haven. I would often come in there um, asking questions about fees or needing help because I messed up my bank account. Um, come in dressed with my hoodie on, my, my, my fitted hat, um, my jeans uh, sagging more than likely. Uh, but it was one day that um, <clears throat> uh, after, you know, talking to him about sports and things like that, when I when I would come in and have a conversation, I then asked him, is it difficult to get a job in the bank? Um, and he gave me like a little confused look. And he said, you know, what? it's not difficult at all. Bring your resume in and we can talk. 
Um, I, I didn't have a resume. I had to reach out to a family member. Can you uh, put a resume together for me? Brought it into him and he gave me my first opportunity. Um, I literally went from selling drugs to working at the bank it, it, within a span of two weeks. And uh, he told me, you know, I, I believe in you. I see something in you uh, that you may not see yourself. And he, he was right. I didn't know how to use an exclamation point. I didn't know how to use a comma correctly. I could not formulate a paragraph. I sat at work and Googled how, how to do all this stuff, how to use proper punctuations. Um, but he believed in me. And um, because he gave me that opportunity, that then started uh, me on the path that I would then go on, which led me to where I am now. We're in a moment in the state of Connecticut, but really the country, where there are all of these concerns about, quote unquote, juvenile crime and this this increased involvement of young people. And we're seeing town halls and legislation rushing to create punishments, but not really addressing the root causes of why young people are making the choice to act in this way. What do you say to other people who uh, need a Mr. Lundy in their life to create opportunity because they see potential? What do you say to community and society about the need to invest in our young people? What, what, what broke my heart, um, it was about uh, a year and a half ago, um, while I was in school and I'm talking to, uh, I was talking to someone else who also came out of the projects. I grew up in St. Nicholas projects. Um, <clears throat> and he said that uh, it is not his job uh, to go back and mentor or uh, go back and um, inspire anyone that um, still, uh, that anyone that still are where he came from, that uh, he got out. So it's not his job to go back. Uh, I believe that we must all lift as we climb. If there were other Ken Lundy's around who can say that, you know, I've been where you are and now look where I am. My story is similar to you. If I can do it, then you can do the same thing. I believe that that would make a difference. But also our justice system. I, I, I did one interview and they say, you know, the system worked for you. No, no, it didn't. Uh, the system attempted to set me up as well. Uh, but between the ages of 17 and, and 21, going to see a probational, uh, probation officer almost every single week. Uh, and uh, one mess up, I would not only get my current charge, but also would now have to face the prior charges and, and do that jail time. It, it, I, I came out of it by the grace of God, but there are others who uh, could have a, a, a more impactful story than a Quavon Newton. For anyone who, who has a jail record, there, there are other Quavon Newton, so to say, who had a record uh, and still was able to attain success. There, there's nothing that you cannot do. Your past does not define you. Your past cannot uh, uh, hinder what it is that you can do and accomplish in the future. Anything is possible as long as you're willing to work for it. You were the commencement speaker for your alma mater, James Hill House High School in New Haven. I know Hill House has this very storied reputation and there's a lot of competition about which high school is the best in New Haven. But in your speech, you said this to students, and I want to lift it for our listeners. Everything I was chasing was attainable through education. What does education mean to you? Education is everything. Education helped me to uh, discover who I am. As I, I said in the beginning, it, I was chasing to, um, to, 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 to really find out who I am. I was trying to 
uh, gain the re revelation of who I am and uh, education, uh, learning about uh, black struggle, especially uh, learning about the story of Frederick Douglass that uh, once he, he was educated and educated others, they, they just could not stay where they were. Education also expands your mind, allows you to do some critical thinking. It's, it's helpful for life. Um, and, and as you educate yourself, not, not only will you think different, but it also opens doors. Uh, so that piece of paper allows you to get into some doors that you may not have been able to get into a stuff. So education is really the, um, the key to really success and, um, uh, and really attaining uh, your, your, your dreams. And of course, you, you can definitely do so without it. You can, uh, you can start your own business. You can uh, work on a trade. But even with that, you have to educate yourself. Reflecting on the life that you have lived thus far, all you've seen, all you have learned, and then also what you are planning to do in the future and continue on that path. What is one thing that you would like us collectively to work on to build and empower young people in our communities across Connecticut? Um, I would just say work on uh, that, that, that sense of community. Um, I, I used to hear those stories back in the day that, you know, if, if you went outside, Nana Lee across the street saw you doing something you wasn't supposed to, Nana Lee would correct you. Um, <laughs> I think building that sense of community, uh, like I said, lifting as we climb, uh, as we gain information, as we are inspired, uh, how can we pass that on to someone else? How can we also inspire someone else? How, how can we encourage a young man or a young woman to be even greater uh, than who they are, to uh, understand that you will make mistakes, but your mistakes do not define you. Build that sense of community. Who, who, who are you mentoring today? And if the answer is no, who, who could you begin to mentor? Well, thank you for sharing your story and for not shying away from the fullness of the story, and we look forward to seeing the story continue. Reverend Quavon Newton is senior pastor of Rush Temple AME Zion Church in Queens, New York, and he's a 2021 graduate of Yale Divinity School. Reverend Newton, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I, I officially made it. I've, I've been on Disrupted. I have made it in life. You, you can't tell me that I haven't. Thank you. After the break, two sisters talk about maintaining their Muslim faith in the face of adversity and hate. And later, the Norfolk Chamber Music Festival is pushing classical music to adapt to the modern world. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking to young people who are making an impact in Connecticut and beyond. Coming up later, we'll hear about a unique new project from the Norfolk Chamber Music Festival. It's making classical music more accessible to more audiences. But first, back in May, Bayan Galal made national news. She was elected as Yale's first Muslim student body president, and her sister Aya is a multimedia journalist for WFSB-TV. Aya was the first TV newscaster in the state to wear hijab during her broadcast. She says she's just the fourth person to do so in North America. Aya was a student of mine at Quinnipiac University. The Galal sisters proudly affirm their faith even as they face heightened scrutiny and discrimination in Connecticut. 
I asked Aya how it feels to lead the charge for greater diversity in reporting. It's definitely incredible. I mean, it certainly was not easy getting to this point. I mean, growing up, I didn't see people like me who looked on television. So to be in a position where, you know, little Muslim girls can see someone who looks like them reflected on their TV screens, I think it's important. But, you know, it's very exciting. In the beginning, it was also very nerve wracking. You know, you do put a lot of pressure on yourself. But overall, I'm, I'm really happy that I was able to get to this point. Um, it took a lot of hard work. You know, it took a lot of me convincing myself that I was, in fact, capable when often I didn't think I was. And so I'm, I'm happy that I'm doing something that I love each and every day. And Bayan, what about you? I think for me, the biggest word that I would use is um, surreal. I think this entire experience has been very surreal, even just coming to Yale um, to begin with, getting involved with the Yale College Council, um, our student government, or as we call it, YCC. Um, And then to really become the first to do something at Yale was truly something I could not have imagined. It it makes me really excited to see that these institutions are finally changing in a way where we are now creating space for students of color and other marginalized groups on campus. Um, And so for me, this represents an opportunity to, you know, pave a way for future students from marginalized backgrounds to get not only a lot more involved with Um, you know, YCC itself, but also to just have a better, you know, and more accessible presence on campus as a whole, so that we can, you know, use this time to advocate for the issues that impact us. So it's been very exciting. And like I said, surreal so far. So in case our listeners do not realize, you two are sisters. So these are two dynamic young women from the same family making so many important achievements. What's the reaction of your parents and your family to the things that you are doing right now? They're definitely very, very proud. And I think rightfully so. And I have to give a shout out to my parents because, you know, I I touched on this earlier, but there was a point where I did not think a new station would want to hire me, someone who wears the hijab, someone who's very visibly Muslim to be on air reporting the news. And so I actually, my first journalism job out of college, I was a producer. So I worked behind the scenes and I enjoyed it. I learned a lot, but, you know, deep down, I felt like, you know, I wanted to be out in the field. I wanted to be reporting, but I just, I had so much self-doubt and my parents really, they were the ones who pushed me and they said, you know, look, if that's what you want to do, we definitely think you are capable of doing it. And so they truly believed in me from the start. They pushed me to do the things that I deep down wanted to do. And they have been supportive ever since. And I think they're so proud just seeing us fulfilling our dreams. And and they played such a pivotal role in supporting us along the way. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think it's probably also very fulfilling for our parents to see this because their their path as Egyptian immigrants definitely was not easy to get to this point and being able to see, I think their kids fulfilling um, these roles now here in Connecticut is really exciting. Our parents have instilled in us following your dreams and pursuing what you are excited about, despite, you know, other external factors that are out there has been a really critical part of this, because even in in my role, I'm, (laughs) I'm a pre med student, but I still wanted to also pursue like politics and policy work and YCC at Yale. And so this is something that they, you know, have supported me in and encouraged me to continue pursuing. Both of you have talked about what it meant for your family and for your parents, in particular, to see you excel in these spaces. And while that is tremendous, 
for some people, the, the reaction may be negative. Do you feel like you've encountered some negative reaction or increased scrutiny? And if so, share with our listeners what that has been for you on your journey. Yeah, there's definitely been some negative reaction, sadly, as expected when you have someone who wears the hijab reporting the news. And so uh, it was especially difficult when I first started on air at Channel 3. Most of the negativity would come on social media when I was out doing stories and posting links to the stories or doing a Facebook Live from a scene or something like that. And some of the comments were just terribly racist, Islamophobic, uh, people accusing me of being a terrorist, working for the Taliban, you know, saying, why would Channel 3 ever hire someone who wears the hijab? I'm no longer watching Channel 3. Seeing the comments people had to say about my hijab, especially in the beginning, it, it was challenging. People emailed the news station saying, One man was threatening to go to CBS headquarters about me saying, why would the station ever hire someone who looks like me to report the news? And so there was quite a bit of of backlash. Not all of it was negative, but I certainly feel, you know, to this day that there is a sense of increased scrutiny because it's, you know, people are watching very carefully and they will be very quick to call me out if I mess up. Fortunately, you know, I, I, I try to focus on, on the positive. There has been some, some really great supportive folks who have reached out. Not everything has been negative, but especially in the beginning, when I, when I first started reporting on the air, just some of the, the emails I would receive and the comments I would see on social media, it, it was just incredibly disheartening. And Bayan, what about you? Yeah, so I would say as, you know, my election gained coverage, there were definitely some people who questioned why my religion or race should matter, why this, you know, should deserve coverage or anything like that. And I think the fact that that existed is the reason why we needed it to begin with, because people do have to recognize that, you know, being the first of a marginalized background to take on these spaces and these roles is incredibly challenging, but also really important for the strides that we are able to make. I I think even more than the election period itself, my year as presidency will be one that is heavily scrutinized, um, where people will be waiting to see how I respond to things and, and how I act and what I pursue throughout the year. People will be waiting, you know, to to see if you slip up and things like that, especially for for minorities. Right. Like people will be waiting to see is is she going to mess up? Often when you hear people say, why is this such a big deal? Why are we focusing on their identity? And to hear you say that in the last two years, this institution that existed for hundreds of years is still having these firsts, as you said, speaks to not just the challenge of that, but the opportunity. And so we're grateful that you're stepping into that opportunity to make a difference. Aya, as a multimedia journalist, you now play this key role in shaping the stories that are told and also whose stories are told. So with this opportunity that you are in, what are the stories that you're telling and what are the stories that you look forward to telling? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think you bring up a great point um, that really, especially following the death of George Floyd, I think a lot of newsrooms had to look internally and think, okay, you know, when we need so-called experts, who are we going to? Are we going to the same, you know, Caucasian professors or are we actually reaching out and trying to get, you know, different voices and making sure different perspectives, uh, you know, women of color 
you know, I know Dr. Brownden, I've reached out to you before to try to see if I could speak to you for stories as well. And, and just making sure that when we need experts on certain topics, whether it's politics, race, ethnicity, things like that, that, you know, we are making sure we're being more open and in and, and making sure, you know, we're not going to the same people each time for every story, the same so-called experts. But I think, you know, there's a huge opportunity for me as well in that I can go out to different communities, communities that don't typically get to share their stories. And so I think a moment for me where I was like, wow, you know, this is really just an incredible opportunity was um, it was right around Ramadan. So that's the holy month for Muslims when we're fasting. And I was able to share the story of how different mosques are celebrating Ramadan. And this was also last year when there were different COVID restrictions and how people were celebrating. So I think it's it's stories like that where, you know, you don't typically, we see, we have tons of coverage on, you know, different Christmas events, Christmas related celebrations and things like that. But how often do we hear about Ramadan or Eid on the news? And many people might not even know what these holidays are, but these are big holidays for Muslims. So being able to share stories about Ramadan or different Muslims, you know, breaking barriers, that's something I hope to continue to be able to do going forward. The beauty of, of telling our stories and highlighting the stories of others is that we get to see the commonality, the, the common humanity that exists across. And I think it breaks down some of those barriers, but it also creates opportunities for others to be able to succeed because now they can turn on the news and see someone who looks like them. They can listen to a student body president and say, one day I too want to be in that position of leadership. And I'm thinking here back to 2020 when then Senator Kamala Harris was giving her speech, the nomination acceptance speech, and she said, I may be the first, but I won't be the last. It can be a real challenge to place this on the shoulders of people who are already sort of saddled with others' expectations. But I will ask the two of you, because I know it's something that you're committed to, and I'll start with you, Bayan. What can be done to create more spaces so that while you may be the first Muslim president of Yale University, to ensure that you are not the last or that whoever wants to be in that leadership position, their identity does not become a barrier. Yeah, I definitely think that's a critical part of, you know, what I'm hoping to instill in the YCC is making sure that this is the place that can be accessible to students of all backgrounds um, and, and anyone and everyone should be excited and welcome to um, join and also feel that it's a very accessible process to them. And so one you know, aspect of doing that is that in the actual recruitment process for YCC itself um, and our election process that we have in the fall for incoming first years and things like that, um, I'm hoping that we will advertise our recruitment much more broadly and specifically reach out to, for example, the cultural houses that we have at Yale and other student organizations who have not been, you know, adequately represented in the YCC. And I think in doing so, in making sure that from the beginning, we have these students at the table, um, we can really ensure that the YCC is slowly shifting in this direction. And I think it it creates a really wonderful effect in the sense that when you have more students of minority backgrounds in the YCC, then you have more people who can also advocate for the needs of marginalized students. Um, and so I think creating that cycle and that community where we're getting these students and then they advocate for um, these, you know, 
variety of needs of the student body can create a really incredible cycle in the YCC where we are, you know, creating a pathway for, for more students to take on the highest roles. And what about you? How do you use this experience, this opportunity that you have to open up space for others to pursue their interests and their passions as well? Yeah. And I feel very grateful that I had a, a supportive system help me and encourage me along the way to get to this point. So I definitely fully acknowledge that for others to do maybe what I'm doing or, or do become the first in what they want to do, they're going to need to have mentors they could look to or a support system. And so being able to speak with young Muslim women and encourage them and and tell them, look, if you need someone to talk to, you need someone for advice, I am here. You know, my DMs are open. I've had people message me from halfway across the world. You know, I had a, a Muslim woman who wears hijab. She's a journalism student message me for advice on Instagram. And, and it's things like that, having conversations with other young Muslims, giving them advice giving them tips, hey, look, this is what you can do to hopefully break barriers and, and ultimately get to the goal you want to achieve. And so I just want people to know that, you know, any any Muslims listening out there or anyone else who wants advice and maybe they do want to go into journalism and want to tell other people's stories, I am always here to offer advice, to answer questions or to point people in the right direction. And, and I think that's something else that's important to note. You really do have to see it to believe it sometimes. And so I remember when I saw other Muslim, another Muslim hijabi reporter on the air in uh, the Midwest, I we reached out, I reached out to her just to tell her how incredible I thought it was that she was doing something that I wanted to do. And we're still in touch to this day. Now we have a little group message of four Muslim women who wear the hijab on the air, three in the U.S., one in Canada, and we're just there to provide support for one another. And so now we're looking into having some sort of, you know, international Zoom event for any aspiring uh, Muslim women out there who want to connect with us. And just so we can share each other's stories and provide advice for each other along the way and really just having even if it's a small group of people who understand you know where you're coming from what are the struggles what are the challenges and having that support system i think is incredibly important Aya Galal is a multimedia journalist for WFSB TV. Her sister Bayan is student body president at Yale University. Coming up, Norfolk Chamber Music Festival director Melvin Chen shares the story behind a new project that he hopes will inject new energy into the classical music genre. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. All this hour, we've been talking with people who disrupt notions of leadership and representation to promote change. We've been focusing on religion and faith, and now we turn to music. Classical music as a genre has struggled to stay relevant. According to a 2019 Nielsen report, classical music is ranked as the least popular genre in America. But a new project from the Norfolk Chamber Music Festival is hoping to change that. Melvin Chen is director of the festival. He's also deputy dean of the Yale School of Music and professor in the practice of piano. He's creator of the Musical Bridges Project. It's a three-year program that commissions new classical work for the festival. Melvin, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you. Happy to be here. 
Before we talk about the amazing work that you're doing with the festival, I want to hear more about your interest in classical music in terms of how you were exposed to the genre. Well, <laughs> I well, I would say that I had uh I grew up in a typical Asian uh household, which means that I you know, the the stereotype is that all Asian kids play the violin and the piano, which is exactly what I did. <laughs> I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, as an example, but I never listened to any country music. <laughs> the only music my parents had playing in the house and in the car was uh, classical music. So I guess it's no surprise that I ended up in that music. You know, as someone who grew up playing violin and learning the Suzuki method, listening to you talk about that really makes me connect to that experience. But I'm also curious, because you said that was sort of the, the expectation growing up. What is it about the classical music genre that excites you and keeps you connected to that music? Um, well, I mean, I think it's the the music itself. You know, I um, I remember as a kid you know, when I heard certain pieces, like I still remember, like, what, you know, where I was when I heard this piece of music and where I was when I heard that piece of music. And part of it is just the beauty of the music. Like you, it touches, it, you know, at least for me, it touches me. And so that's why, you know, remember certain pieces. But, you know, Melvin, with, with classical music, there's often this critique that it is um, more reserved than other genres. And in particular, that it has this history of exclusion and largely catering to white audiences. But the work that you've been doing with the music festival is really trying to change that, to, to challenge and confront it, but also trying to change that perception and that connection. Talk to us about the Musical Bridges project and what you hope to achieve with it. Right. I mean, I think that um, anyone who plays classical music, who loves classical music, who listens to classical music, I, I think that all of us have to confront the fact that the music that we've been studying, that we've been playing, that we've been listening to, the you know, that music is the product of overwhelmingly the product of European white men. And so the question is, you know, how can we reconcile the fact that that is true um, with the fact that this is this is my profession, this is what I do, this is what I teach, and how can we move that forward? So my, my feeling about it is um, any art form uh, is not fossilized, right? <laughs> you know, like like when you when you study art or when you study uh, music, it's always changing and evolving. And different art forms change at different speeds. Some some are on the always on the cutting edge of of what's happening in society. Uh, others, uh, you know, lag behind. And I think classical music is one of those that lag behind. If you look at our modern co concert experience of classical music, right, where you go in, you pay a ticket, you sit in a hall, you have to be quiet, you can't talk, you can't cough, you know, it actually turns out that that concert experience was consciously the product of exclusion. So I, uh, those are things we have to wrestle with, right? And so that's one, on one hand, those are the kinds of questions I've been thinking about. On the other hand, is the fact that classical music needs to evolve and needs to change in order to 
to remain an art form, actually, to, in order to remain a vibrant art form. Without, without people saying it explicitly, you know, there's the idea that classical music is somehow, quote unquote, better than other kinds of music, and that's why you should study it, right? Of course, that's a false statement. <laughs> I mean, you know that there's, there around the world, there are multiple genres of music, each have their own tradition, each have their own, you know, spectacular art form. And so, Part of it is that we need to recognize that classical music is just another genre of music, right? And finally, I feel like classical music has to start to participate in the kinds of conversations that we've been having in society, you know, over the past, you know, two years especially, but but um, even before that. And so, the musical uh, bridges project is a is is my small way of of trying to address those things. You know, the first. The first commission was the, this Daniel Romain commission in which he not only dealt with, you know, um, juxtaposing different genres of music. So he has, you know, in this piece there, there's quotations from Bach, you know, but on, on the other hand, he also writes with his own style, which draws from many different musical influences. Melvin, yeah. let's let's talk about the, the first piece that you just mentioned that's coming out of the Musical Bridges Project is called Twin Stars, Diamond Variations for Diana. And it is a representation or a conversation with the murder of Philando Castile. And so for our listeners who may not be aware, Philando Castile was a young man sitting in a car with his, I believe it was his fiance and his young child and was shot and killed by police officers. Why choose this as the first piece for the project? First of all, I mean, the reason I wanted, I knew I wanted Daniel to write the first one is that I've known him for a long time. So I, I knew I wanted him to write a piece. So we talked a lot about what he wanted to do. And, it, you know, he wanted to write something about Philando Castile. And we were originally, it was supposed to have premiered a year ago in the summer of 2020, but because of the pandemic, we had to cancel the festival. But we were talking about this and, and he, I think the subject interested him in two ways. One is that, and this is, this is the way he approached the piece. He, looking at Philando Castile and his family, he, you know, his feeling is like, look, this is an American family, right? They got up that morning, they had cereal together, they brushed their teeth, they got in their car and were driving somewhere. And this is, this is what happened to an American family. I think the second thing was this killing was recorded was was streamed live to facebook if you if you watch the video i think it's quite remarkable that this woman you know at the same time you know her partner's dying she's trying to comfort her child and it and also actually the police officer <laughs> you know what i mean so i think um you know he saw that as a kind of remarkable acts of compassion by this by this woman uh in the midst of all this chaos and so i think that those are the those are the two kind of things that intrigued him about this particular story. And, you know, I, and, and I, you know, I have to say, you know, the, the piece that came out of it is, is quite powerful. So I want our listeners to, to have a taste 
of that performance. But before we do that, I want to share it or compare it to something that's more traditional because I think it gives us a nice juxtaposition for how the art and the genre can connect in many ways. And so the piece that we're going to listen to is actually from a Russian composer, Shashkakovich, who was sort of a landmark artist in the classical genre. But his music is often very difficult for newer audiences to connect to or to digest. So we're going to hear a sample from one of his string quartets. It's a very intense piece, but it also in many ways feels that there is a a conflict and a clash and there's an anger there that can be hard to sift through. You're the expert, Melvin Chin. What do you hear when you listen to that piece? Actually, this is very interesting because on the program that I had, the Daniel Romain piece, I had a, a Shostakovich trio that uses the same theme that's present in the the eighth string quartet we we just heard and the reason i juxtaposed these two pieces together is that the the program i I called uh, music from troubled times what i wanted to show in this program is how composers respond to different kinds of oppression Um, and that theme was used by shostakovich because um you know he wrote wrote that during World War II, and he was hearing kind of the horrors that w- that were going on in the Holocaust by the German soldiers. And so that's his his, his response to that kind of oppression. You, and you hear the intensity, you hear the anger, you hear the Jewish themes. And in, in the trio, you hear, you know, where even where he asks the, um, the string players to hit the strings with the wood of their bow instead of the hair and it gives it this kind of eerie quality and that was supposed to represent like the skeletons of the of the holocaust and so i i i want i i put that on the same program as the dbr for a couple reasons one is to so that people can hear you know what are the different ways in how composers musically respond to different kinds of you know oppression or you know those kinds of things and and i have to say that uh when you hear the dbr piece it's it i would say it's gone through a transformation right uh when we first talked about it in 2019 i think if if we had if we had heard daniel's piece then it would it, it would be completely different because i think though at that time though the emotions he was feeling he was feeling anger you know the piece might have been more close to Shostakovich than, than what you'll hear. And and I think as uh, as time went on, I think he went towards a place of, you know, how of transcendence, I would say. You know, how can we use this, you know, this horrible event and and transcend that event and and use it to come away with something more spiritual, something more positive. And I think that's where the piece ended up. So I want then for our audience to listen to this moment from the DBR piece. Again, it is Twin Stars, Diamond Variations for Diana. We've heard this before. We've seen this before. 
of that piece that sound very traditional, but then there are other elements that feel very familiar and much more modern and somewhat atypical for a classical music piece. Why do you think DBR's piece there may connect more with newer listeners or may sound more familiar to those listeners? Yeah, I mean, and I I think he... First of all, like I think uh, DBR is a kind of musical polymath. You know, he he studied, you know, he knows the classical repertoire, right? Like he studied, that's what he studied in college. But, you know, he also, you know, growing up had many, many musical influences, especially of popular music from hip hop to, you know, to, to rock. And so he draws upon all these things. And the reason that it feels familiar is that when when he uses these kind of popular genres like we you know everyone has heard these right the these genres everyone can connect to them immediately these musical themes are introduced in the beginning and he said you know when 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 you hear it in the beginning you know that's that could be a song that patsy klein wrote you, you know what i mean and so because of that like we we you know that's what that's what everyone grew up hearing so that's that feels familiar to you so that it starts that way and then in the middle he kind of there's a kind of digression into Bach you know where he quotes the Goldberg variations and then at the end he brings them all together and you know it's it is in, in this piece putting those two things in conversation kind of the traditional uh, classical music with, you know, the popular American genres that he's also familiar with. And so I think, you know, it's the great thing about his piece is that he's able to bring bring those two traditions together. It again speaks to DBR's artistry to be able to move so deftly across those spaces to bring something together that can evoke emotion, but a much more reflective emotion than, as you said, prior iterations of that piece. The Musical Bridges Project is grant funded for the next two years, but you have said that you hope that it continues indefinitely. What do you see as next or next steps for the project? And what should our audience expect for next year's premiere? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to um, continue to try to connect different genres of music to classical music. The next commission uh, will be of a of a um, South Asian composer, Rina Esmail, who's um, her music combines, you know, kind of Western classical music with traditional Hindustani music, and so that will be a piece for, again, kind of you know, piano quintet or whatever with a with a tabla, which is a you know Indian classical Indian drum, and so uh, you know, as you you know, I think as the pr- project. Um, progresses, I'd like to, you know, connect this, whatever we call Western classical music to as many kind of musical traditions as possible. Um, 
basically for the idea of where you know i want to put classical music back you know in the in the constellation of all kinds of uh music that we can hear all around the world and because i feel like it's been too disconnected and so i'd like to try to put it back so we can we can hear not only other other traditions but we can also feel like classical music is part of that conversation Melvin Chen is director of the Norfolk Chamber Music Festival. He's also professor and deputy dean in the Yale School of Music. To learn more about the festival and hear a full performance of Daniel Bernard Romain's composition, you can visit our website at ctpublic.org disrupted. If you know of disruptors you'd like us to interview, send us an email. You can do so at disrupted at ctpublic.org. This episode was produced by James Scoble Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Talarski. Our interns are Kelly Langevin and Macy Carvalho. I'm Kalila Brown Dean. Thanks for listening. <laughs>